0: Hello and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Fiona Hill came to public prominence when she was called to testify before Congress during the first impeachment of Donald Trump. Hill is an academic who specialises in Russian politics and who had previously served as an analyst and an advisor to both the Bush and Obama administrations. She became a senior director for European and Russian affairs on Trump's National Security Council staff in 2017 and served until 2019, when she was called as a witness by the committee investigating Trump's attempt to pressure Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky into assisting with a smear campaign against Joe Biden. After leaving government, Hill returned to a position at the Washington think tank at the Brookings Institution, and she has recently published a book, There Is Nothing For You Here, which charts her unusual journey from a working-class mining family in Bishop Auckland in the north of England to the White House, and reflecting on what her own life experiences might tell us about politics in the age of populism. I talked to her earlier. Fiona Hill, you're very welcome to the podcast.
2: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
0: It's a real pleasure to have you on. I've been listening to you on a a few other podcasts over the last while. But the the first time I heard your voice or saw you was, of course, during the the first um, Trump impeachment. Um, And... I have to say, um, I was reading your your excellent book and there's a there's a, there's one anecdote in it where you meet Tony Blair of all people at a conference in Aspen. <laughs> yeah. And he, recognising your accent because you are from Durham in North East England uh, and he was actually, his constituency was right next to where, where you're from. He said something like, how the hell did you get here? And I think you took slight umbrage at that. But I felt a little bit like that when I heard your accent because it just seemed so strange to hear to hear it in the context of what was happening in, in Washington at the time. I know there are lots of accents and there are lots of people from around the world who end up in Washington, but I've never heard somebody with your accent ending up in, a, in such a, a high, high stakes, high drama political moment in Washington, D.C.
2: Well, you know, you do have a point there. And um, of course, you know, I mentioned in the book that I, you know, sort of um, played with Tony Blair a little bit because I said, well, what do you mean I got here on a plane? How did you get here? You know, kind of thing. Because this was Aspen, uh, Colorado. And it was during, you know, one of the, Uh, conferences there so you know I I felt I think a little bit aggrieved there because in that context it wasn't that completely inconceivable that I could have got there you know I mean there were some other you know people like myself then academics and analysts and you know public policy figures from all the way around the world but you're absolutely right in the context of the impeachment that really was um, somewhat improbable and um, obviously I recognize that because in the moment um, of preparation I kind of felt, you know, I had to explain myself. And so actually I did something in the beginning of um, the impeachment um, hearings that I've never really done before, which is sort of say who I was and where I came from, Uh, not just, you know, Fiona Hill from the Brookings Institution and the previous professional uh, positions that I've had, as I would in a normal uh, congressional hearing. But then suddenly saying, you know, I grew up in the northeast of England, a coal mining town and giving this background because You know, not only do I have a British accent, but I have a very unusual one. And also, there was that kind of sense of what what right do you have to be here that came out in the closed door uh, preparatory hearings for that public uh, testimony that everybody saw. And those um, hearings the uh basically the transcript of them was published just beforehand, or four hundred plus, you know, pages of them. But I got a quite hostile reaction from um some members of the committee on the Republican side, which was, you know, kind of these um hints of disloyalty to Trump by, you know, trying to, you know, testify and live up to my oath of office. But also because Trump was such a populist figure, which is you know part of the theme of issues in the book, who um basically claimed that he was speaking on the behalf of the American people, but especially the you know what Americans call the middle class, which in the British and you know Irish context is the working class. And to speak on all of their behalf, who the heck was I, you know, to be there, this middle aged, you know, bureaucrat, deep state coup plotter we were being called, with this, you know, British accent that they couldn't discern, maybe it was some hoity toity accent that somebody actually once said, which of course it wasn't. You know, who was I to be there? And I, you know, this got my back up because, you know, not only was it um that You know, I was a naturalized citizen with every right to be there and, you know, doing the job. But I also came from that very class of people that Trump was supposedly representing. And, you know, many of these members of Congress, you know, maybe they might be out competing themselves in the stakes of who's best connected to the American base. But although I didn't grow up in America, I grew up in exactly the same kind of situation as the people that they're trying to appeal to. And, you know, I did sort of feel to myself, please don't try that on me. And, you know, I guess it did, you know, provoke me in a way to then uh, write um, the introduction to my public testimony in a way that I put out there right away that you know, I come from a working class background in the northeast of England with you know, a family of coal miners with an awful lot of ties to the United States. And just putting that out there right again is, you know, please do not ask, you know, kind of any questions of which you're Questioning not my credibility as a fact witness, but my own, you know, kind of individuality and my own, you know, legitimacy as a as a as a uh, naturalised citizen, and with somebody who has, you know, kind of their own right to express uh, a, a perspective.
0: Indeed, and your own your own personal story coming from a working class background in one of the parts of England which has suffered economically most over the last. 30 or 40 or 50 years, maybe even now, it sort of informs the the, the themes of the book too. I mean, it, the book touches on geopolitics, the role of Russia, the current state of America. But you're still, in in the words of, I think, your, I'm not sure if it was your father or your mother, a clever last from Durham. You made it out of a society where most most people stayed and you moved. You moved both geographically and socially quite dramatically.
2: Well, look, I think this is very familiar to um, people listening in Ireland, right? I mean, Ireland um, has had to be, um, you know, basically um, a source of emigration. I mean, lots of people have gone away and come back again, but the Irish have always had to be on the move in look in search of opportunity or sometimes just of survival. You know, thinking back into the um, long Irish history, I mean, a lot of people have said to me from Ireland and elsewhere, you know, very similar, look, you know, similar things happened to me. You know, I had to go um, and, you know, look for, uh, you know, work or um, an opportunity somewhere else uh, because they just the circumstances prevailing, you know, in Ireland or somewhere else at the time were just exactly the same. But you never forget who you are. And I certainly never did. And I mean, that's, again, you know, tied into um, the, you know, the reason for using myself and my own journey as the kind of the central thread going through the book that it informed my perspectives on everything, including, you know, ultimately working in the Trump administration, I'd gone in there, you know, to work on Russia. But ultimately, it kind of brought me back into tune with my earlier identities, because he is a guy in Trump, a populist figure, you know, basically, uh, trying to uh privatize and personalize um the grievances and feelings of know a whole bunch of people from the working class and forgotten places in america that are very similar to the north of england he is professing to speak on the behalf of coal miners from west virginia you know in the way same way that a populist politician in the uk might have done in the past uh said that they would talk on behalf of coal miners from county durham and you know it brought back into very um a fresh perspective and, um, you know, in uh, in many respects, you know, a whole flood of memories and of um, uh, of thoughts that I'd had, you know, myself as a kid growing up in that kind of environment, trying to understand, you know, who I was in the world, you know, what um, larger global uh, developments meant for me and my family, you know, in a a time that was um, extraordinarily difficult. And, uh, you know, I, I, I really did, you know, kind of get that sense because I hadn't forgotten who I was and, you know, where I'd come from, that there was something to, to say, you know, we couldn't just have people like, you know, Donald Trump speaking on people's behalf you know someone like me you needed to speak out I mean in a way it's kind of strange that I feel like I've had to wait 50 years to get my own voice you know because I was 16 you know roughly you know when my dad said to me there's nothing for you here pet you know if you're going to go off and go to college you know university and get an education you won't be able to come back and I didn't actually want to leave but I wanted you know how do people you know kind of from a place like County Durham or, you know, some small town in Ireland, how do you find a voice that kind of resonates more broadly to, you know, draw attention to the things that are happening to you and the unfairness and injustice and to, you know, to sort of speak out? It's, you know, taken me 50 years to get there. It it happened through a strange, you know, way of getting, you know, called up to act as a witness at an impeachment trial of a US president. And, you know, now it's given me a platform that I would never have have anticipated and I do feel, you know, that again, as I lay out in the book, that having not forgotten where I'm from, that I need to sort of speak out, not just on my own behalf, but on behalf of others as well. And, you know, explain to people, um, you know, how all the things that happened to us have factored in to these larger sets of domestic and international politics.
0: You're not the first person to draw comparisons between the experiences of the left behind industrial parts of Northern England, politically now called the blue wall that used to be the red wall. I think right. I think where, where you're from, Bishop of Auckland voted Tory for the first time in, in more than a century. Indeed, and and yeah. voted quite quite strongly for, for Brexit too. And there is definitely a parallel there with the the Rust belt support for for Donald Trump and the Republicans. And but perhaps because of your own journey and the fact that you became an expert on Russian politics, I'm interested that you actually draw in as well, a parallel with Russia, which most other people wouldn't wouldn't see.
2: Yeah, but, you know, you would have seen it. Um, you know, you included um, a few, um, you know, gone to uh, Russia, the Soviet Union, the time that I did, you know, from that same kind of background. So I went to the Soviet Union as a student in 1987. It was the first visit I'd made. I hadn't been on a school trip or anything like that before. I'm an undergraduate. I've got a scholarship from the you know, British Council to go there. And, you know, 1987 is the peak of the Cold War, of course, but it's also at the time when it's really evident that the Soviet Union is in trouble economically. It's, you know, Gorbachev, but it's what they call the deficit period where, you know, the Soviet supply of consumer goods, um, as well as manufactured goods, wasn't keeping up with demand. And the place is crumbling because there hasn't been a lot of money for investment. You know, the Soviet Union's in economic trouble at this point. And... You know, I get there, and my God, it looks like the northeast of England just on a huge scale. You know, I'm I'm growing up in a town where all the shops have been closed up because there's demand, but there's also no. Uh, money. You know, people don't have money to pay for the things that they actually need and want. And as a result of, you know, that um, the shops closed down. It isn't a supply problem. It's, you know, the reversal of it, but it has the same kind of impact of a sort of sense of, you know, desolation, destitution and, um, you know, kind of uh, everything being in a, in a state of decay, you know, local budgets. Uh, for councils in the northeast of England had been decimated because the tax base had gone because there'd been such mass unemployment at the time, and then later, um, in you know, as I start to work um in an academic fashion as a you know, policy analyst on what's happening in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union, when you have the mass privatization of uh, the big commanding heights of the uh, of industry, just like you'd had in the UK. I mean, remembering again that, you know, shipbuilding, coal mining, uh, steel, um, railway works were all nationalized. This was all British steel, British rail, British coal, etc. And when, you know, Margaret Thatcher privatizes all of uh, those industries, you get the big layoffs as things get closed down, you get miners' strike. In the 1990s, the same sort of thing was happening in post-Soviet Russia. And so I immediately see all of this. And I see it because of its perspective of something I've lived through myself I think if, you know, I've come from a different background in a different place, and I'd also never lived in a big city before. Moscow is the first big city I live in. And, you know, what am I comparing it to? I'm comparing it to, you know, the northeast of England. It didn't look very much like St. Andrews. It's a very nice university town that I'm going to, but it looks an awful lot like, you know, Newcastle (laughs) and Undyne. People might think that's absurd, but, you know, there used to be a lot of linkages with the Soviet Union in the northeast, you know, going back to the Bolshevik period as well as the imperial period. You know, you had Peter the Great who went round to the shipyards of Europe, you know, including into England, you know, trying to learn how to build up a navy. But in the 1920s, you have... um Russian Soviet writers and others who are writing about the new industrial state that the Soviet Union um, is a, is about to create or is the process of creating coming, you know, to the northeast of England. You have a famous Soviet writer, Yevgeny Zamyatin, who writes one of um, his most celebrated books, We, actually on the basis of uh, being in uh, the northeast of England and seeing the kind of industrial labor movement there. And of course, you know, George Orwell uh, spends a lot of time with uh, the miners um, of uh, the northern parts of England. And, you know, that factors into books that he writes. And, you know, he's obviously kind of thinking about some of the Soviet and, uh, you know, other parallels at the time. So there are a lot of linkages there. It's just that I experienced them really acutely because of that timing of coming to um, the Soviet Union, Russia for the very first um experience that I had in a very particular time that was relevant for me and you know resonated there as well.
0: And you were coming there of course just only a couple of years after after leaving school and a comprehensive in your local town which was exactly just almost exactly at the time of the uh, of the miners strike um and and equally at the same time there was the the intensification of the cold war with trident and all that that was happening. So it was a very kind of pivotal moment but I do wonder reading the book and I think you kind of you kind of hint at it as well clearly the the policies of of Reagan in the United States and Thatcher in the UK had a huge impact on on the communities you're talking about but there were underlying trends that were probably happening before that weren't there i mean your dad lost his job in the mines before Margaret Thatcher oh, came yeah. to power so there were underlying trends so i wonder because you're very critical of the way the um governments in particularly in the United States and the United Kingdom have dealt with communities like the one that you came from but In a way, the mines were always going to go, weren't they? The steelworks were always going to go. The question was, what was going to replace them, or was anything going to replace them?
2: Yeah, and it was, and I think also it was the way it's how they were going to go, right? and you know the case of northern england okay you're right the mines were closing down in that long period i mean in many respects many of the coal mines were rescued uh from closure by the outbreak of world war 2 i mean my dad would have been the first to you know admit that um you know for example that you know his dad had been out of work for years before World War Two, I mean, partly because he didn't engaged in strike actions, particularly after the general strike of 1926. But partly because a lot of the coal, you know, the, the, the demand was changing. The economy was, you know, changing even in that period um, between uh, World War One and World War Two. But, you know, the mines opened back up again for the war effort. And, you know, it was after that they were nationalised and, you know, there was a, then that probably distorted a lot of the patterns that you're talking about. But when you then look at the other heavy industry, there was still a lot of profitability in um, some of the sectors. And one might have argued that coal was still profitable because of, you know, kind of certain changes. And, you know, there could have been a, a more gradual glide path. What you what happened in the 1980s, which is the bit that I'm really critical about, is the abruptness. And then the fact of not really addressing the issue of, you know, what you just said, what was going to come to replace it. Now, a lot of people would say, look, then, you know, these places were built up around steel, steel um, works and coal mines and, a lot of these were red brick communities, as we call them. That their only existence was for that. You know, the pit village my dad grew up in, you know, it, it was for several open cast mines, um, uh, rather um, drift mines, where people walked in, open cast, open cast came along later in a paint uh, factory that was actually for the mines and for local industry. Those go but there's nothing for people to do there. But the thing is, you know, people didn't have cars. Um, you know, they, they weren't uh, very well off and they didn't have the skills that were transferable to go somewhere else. So the whole idea is, you know, people can, you know, should move in, in search of opportunities, as my dad said to me, but they couldn't move. How could I move? Because my local education authority paid for me to get a free education um, at St Andrews University. My dad didn't get anything. My dad had no qualifications. All he had, you know, when he left school at 14 was a certificate of good handwriting. No joke. You know, because he didn't take any exams. He went straight down the pit. And when he was in the mines, the Durham Miners Association did pay for, you know, literary societies and training. And, you know, my dad was really well read. And, you know, he, you know, um, actually, you know, did expand his horizons there, but he didn't have any formal qualifications. So when the mines closed, he was looking for a job. First, it was a steelworks. Then that job um, ended, brickworks, you know, or manual labour. And then he gets a job in the local hospital, which, you know, that is uh, an opportunity, but he isn't retrained for something. He becomes an auxiliary worker, hospital porter, you know, pushing patients around. You know, he's in his 30s. And, you know, in another setting, he could have had some money to retrain, you know, or to get new skills. So it's all part of the how do you do this and how are you realistic about what's possible? So in the book, what I'm critical about is the lack of planning and foresight and also the lack of understanding and empathy. It's a very harsh way of doing things. I've talked to an awful lot of people who were in and around the Thatcher government at the time and said things could have been done differently. There was, of course, the fight between Margaret Thatcher and Arthur Scargill that made it a kind of clash of the titans and, you know, probably precluded compromise, uh, to be, you know, frank. But there was also ways in which we should have thought about how do you, you know, think about retraining And assisting people in a, you know, kind of a a transitional period, not just writing them all off. It was a similar problem in the Soviet Union. And I talk in the book about a professor that I studied with at Harvard, Janos Kornay, a famous Hungarian um, economist, who'd actually talked about setting up structural and social funds you know, for retraining of workers in Eastern Europe for the same kind of purposes. And, you know, obviously we do have those kinds of funds available. Actually, the EU has a lot of them now, but in the time in the 70s and 80s, you know, or 60s, 70s and early 80s, they weren't really there. And I do talk in the book about how later there is this opportunity for people to retrain. There's the open university, there's all kinds of local... Um, colleges like, um, uh, you know, uh, community college type uh, things that you have in the UKs, uh, United States, as well, there's apprenticeships. But there's just not always the funding and the wherewithal to, you know, help people along the way.
0: Yeah, and we might come back to that because it is a, it is a recurring theme in the book. But just to say, you mentioned Harvard there and you mentioned St. Andrews because your studies took you to both those universities and, as well as to stints in Russia, doing what was then called Soviet studies, of course, then it became... Russian studies, and you became a Russian expert in the United States, sort of within the the sort of the academic intellectual establishment is 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 that fair to say
2: yes, yes it is, yeah, and then there's the unusual open you know revolving door that the u s has that you know, is more rare in other settings to 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 government.
0: Yes. Well, I I exactly wanted to ask you about that, because in a way, what you describe is what what some critics of of American foreign policy, for example, call the blob, isn't it? Which is that there is, you know, there's a world of academia and think tanks and research groups. And then there is this very large turnover of government officials as well. And people do go through one door and out another door. So, for example, you worked for the Bush and Obama administrations and then you joined the Trump administration in, in 2016. As a Russia expert, you surely must have had huge qualms about joining the Trump administration. What caused you to do it?
2: Well, I did it because I was a Russia expert and the qualms were obviously on all the other fronts as well. And, you know, I have been very honest in saying that, look, I was quite naive about US politics. And in spite of, um, you know, many warnings that I had and admonitions from people about this, I really did genuinely think that um, I would be able to get into the administration, having been before in the government, as you suggest, but I was the National Intelligence Officer at that time. And actually, one of the reasons I was brought in there was not you know, because of blob, <laughs> you know, kind of mechanics there. Um, it was because the National Intelligence Council were trying to shake up their own groupthink, their own blob, you know, with people from the outside who were substance experts, but not, you know, um, intelligence um, experts, collectors, you know, whatever you want to call them. And who might question, you know, kind of some of the group groupthink and the intelligence after, in fact, you know, the dodgy dossier and faulty intelligence around um, Iraq and the US invasion of Iraq. So I come in, you know, right after that, after another colleague also brought in from the outside, also initially actually an actualized citizen from the UK, um, brought in to sort of, you know, shake things up a bit and question things. That was actually one of the reasons why I ended up getting asked to come into the Trump administration. It was by Trump himself, obviously, but people I'd worked with previously in the National Intelligence Council and the Directorate of National Intelligence who were kind of stepping in to kind of staff the Trump administration when he didn't really have his own team. I mean, he certainly didn't have anybody permanent on Russia and, in fact, got himself into a lot of trouble because of that. And I thought that given the fact I'd worked with a lot of other people in these other settings, I was not partisan, it was not political, Um, I could get to the core of the national security dilemmas. I was going to have all of Europe as well, not just Russia. And surely I thought to myself, you know, all the people I know that will be working there will be able to cut through the noise of all of this, you know, domestic chaos and get to grips with trying to do something on Russia. Well, of course, that didn't really happen. Although behind the scenes, I have to say, there were a lot of things that we did do that, you know, I think there's a lot of continuity stuff happening now. You know, obviously, I've got a pretty good insight into where things have gone wrong and, you know, what we could have done better, et cetera, and why, you know, there's kind of, I've got a lot of insights now that, you know, I, I wouldn't have had without doing this. But I did, in encar- of course, get myself embroiled um, in the domestic maelstrom. Uh, not, not by choice, of course, but you no, know, indeed, by, and I think you make um, uh, it clear Trump in the book, and
0: you describe how it was impossible, really, given the nature of the Trump administration, uh, not to do that. But, but listening to that, it does occur to me. We had Michael Lewis, the writer, on this oh, podcast yes. a while yeah. ago, and you know he he has charted the absolutely chaotic transition period between the Obama and the Bush administrations, and I and I seem to remember at the time as well there was a lot of debate within Washington circles about people, you know, saying we really need to staff up this, you know, even, even if we have to hold our noses, we really have to staff up this administration with professionals. And um, my impression then over the course of the four years is that a lot of those professionals fell away or were kicked out the door, or that things got worse as the four years of the administration went on. Would that be fair?
2: Well, to some extent, yes. But think about, you know, kind of what happened in 2020, in you know, around January 6th. I mean, who resisted? Um, you know Trump's efforts to um, you know basically effect a coup, a self-coup, and staying in power. It was actually professionals in the Department of Justice, in the military, in the Pentagon, and other places. You know who refused to let Trump um, privatise the military. You know who resisted. You know his efforts to sway. You know the um, electoral count. Um, you know we we know of. You know all kinds of uh, people who uh, resisted that. And they you know, had they not been there, and had it indeed been. Uh, Trump loyalists, we'd be in a very different place now. So I would still like to make the case for you know, many of the people who reta- remained in their jobs in um, the agencies and departments of the US government, who were the professional staff there, and also some of the political appointees who came in and still you know stuck to their guns and their principles and their oaths of office. And it wasn't just, of course, at the federal government level, it was also in the local government level. There's the famous case of Trump trying to bully the um, Secretary of State of the the state of Georgia about, you know, finding more votes and, you know, blocking the electoral count. I mean, the people that I really have in my crosshairs are members of Congress and the Republican Party that, you know, decided not to repudiate um, Trump's lies and false claims and in fact support them one way or another in the pursuit of their own uh, positions in Congress. And when we look back at all of the, you know, resistance to Trump's moves, I mean, yes, you're right. There was a lot of people left, and you know, um, some spoken out, others have got, you know, pushed out, you know, kind of by, um, you know, all kinds of different circumstances. But I mean, it continues to be members of Congress on in the Republican Party who are um, enabling Trump, you know, to basically uh, continue with his assault on the U.S. Uh, democratic system. And, you know, kind of really pushing now to change um, our positions at the state level and the kind of people who are in charge of the electoral count and administering the elections. And, you know, US democracy is under some really serious challenges now. And I think it's actually got worse, you know, since the end of the Trump administration, even though uh, President Biden is in place because of the nature of the partisan politics and the radicalization, frankly, of the Republican Party. Trump has hijacked that party. Um, It's not the Republican Party that I worked with and the individuals that I worked with when I was national intelligence officer in the Bush administration, for example. And it's obviously not, as you said, a lot of the people who were there at the beginning of the Trump administration came out of more conventional Republican Party circles, who staffed it up when Trump didn't have his own people, because Trump has managed to, you know, kind of get rid of a lot of those um, individuals now as well.
0: Why has this happened? You talk at one point, or I've I've heard you say when you were giving your testimony uh, in the impeachment trial, you you were the one of the few people there who had sworn a note to the United States twice: once when you became a citizen, and again when you appeared before Congress. So you you've you've pledged loyalty to um to this uh, to the country to the United States. It's a country that seems to be in a terrible mess uh, to many of us looking at it from outside and, of course, many inside as well. The, the, the presidency has been deeply dysfunctional. It seems both overpowered and underpowered at the same time. Congress seems absolutely frozen and unable to pass any legislation. The Supreme Court has become politicised to a, a toxic extent, it seems to me. You have gerrymandering in Congress, you have a Senate that doesn't represent the majority, but actually represents the minority because of the way it's constituted. And the United States seems to have found itself in a hole out of which it will be extremely hard to dig itself.
2: Well that's spot on. You've you've, you know, really laid it all out there. And, you know, it's also the function, you know, as we've been talking about, these kind of shifts, these dislocations and, um, you know, the economy as well. You know, we had the uh, crisis, um, of course, as a result of the subprime lending, you know, kind of mortgage system that triggered off, you know, from the United States, a broader global financial crisis and then a recession, which really hard hit um, swathes of uh, the US population. You know, in in the US, they say that, you know, Wall Street got Um, bailed out the big banks and the big financial institutions but on Main Street you know the small businesses and you know others that took the hit from this you know people went underwater on not just their housing but you know their own um, small enterprises and you know lost their jobs and the whole generation of people you know feel themselves into great pain. There's all the and that's you know continued on that's like sort of 10 years on. I mean the you know US economy is actually doing re- remarkably well, you know, not all things considered, but that had a lot of uh, knock on impacts. And then you have this, you know, the the classic demographic and uh, Generational change that we see in you know many places as well. I mean, Ireland has changed dramatically in uh, the last uh, you know 20, 30 years, right? I mean, it's kind of a, a, a really a very different person people who might have visited in the past, whereas Northern Ireland has actually you know, not changed very much at all, for example. And you know that might fit into the you know cross border and some of the intercommunal tensions in Ireland. And that's the kind of thing that's happening here in the US as well. We've got differential rates of change, both demographically and economically. You've got some places that are literally stuck in the past, like the northeast of England, you know, where I grew up, which remains predominantly 98% white British, you know, very little immigration, and kind of still stuck in a sort of an industrial past because, you know, new economy has not come in. I mean, yes, there are people living there who now telecommute or people who actually drive miles, you know, to jobs somewhere else. But, you know, in the United States, you've got these regional differentiations where it's not just that new jobs haven't come in, but the, the face of the people has started to change and start to change quickly, but they're still out of step with the rest of the country. So some, you know, people in some of the old American Rust Belt, which used to be the heartland, the industrial heartland, you know, they feel like the country, they don't recognize it anymore. The faces around them are changing. You know, there's demographic change. You know, people keep talking about in 2045, America will be majority minority. I mean, in a way that's not a great way of formulating it right because this is just the way that america is changing but you've got you know cities like new york which are you know like london you know for example and dublin you know to much lesser extent but it just you know multicultural multi-ethnic multi-confessional you know all kinds of different sort of industries there and then you've got you know somewhere like a flint michigan for example that's kind of stuck and it's you know uh previous auto manufacturing past that's really been, you know, taken on an awful lot of pain, you know, Flint, I'm I'm using Flint because of, you know, this, you know, the environmental degradation, you know, the whole fact that they've got lead in the water is ignored for, you know, kind of years because nobody's really been thinking about it. It's actually become uh, predominantly an um, African-American city in many respects because all of the workers in the auto uh, manufacturing plants there You know, couldn't move, you know, they didn't have uh, the wherewithal to move somewhere else. And you had sort of white workers, you know, leaving um, Flint. And, you know, there's even more of a kind of a discrepancy there. So there's all kinds of tensions. Other places, you know, these are all kind of white working class areas of Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania and, and elsewhere. And, you know, they kind of feel left behind because, you know, they haven't got the educational opportunities and, you know, kind of uh, new work and then they sort of see, you know, their communities starting to change. And there's been a lot of really interesting research, which is of course also very disturbing, that shows that the vast majority of people who stormed the US Capitol building on January sixth, they were predominantly male, uh, but they all come from counties that are just sort of beginning to reach a demographic tipping point where, you know, they go from predominantly white so then, you know, kind of more of a, uh, you know, sort of mis- mixed ethnicity and uh, and racial profile and also places where at some point people got hard hit, even though, you know, they might not be now by the, the Great Recession, the crisis of 2008, 2009. They might have recovered, but they might have taken some hit and, you know, still kind of feel, you know, some grievance about that too, although most of the people who, You know storm the building are all kind of people from all kinds of backgrounds it's just this radicalization effect that you have but all of these things are kind of feeding in at once and i think that that helps to sort of also explain the state of affairs that you described so clearly there on the political front the mainstream parties haven't kept up with it the institutions have become ossified we have this bizarre you know 18th century artifact of the electoral college And, you know, kind of uh, the United States needs a refurbishment of its democracy as well as its democratic institutions. But no one really knows how to go about it. And there isn't the collective will to tackle it.
1: Hold up.
0: I want to ask you about your your area of professional expertise, which is, of course, Russia, and among other things, you've written a a book about Vladimir Putin. But we should should just touch, first of all, on the impeachment incident, because you were um, essentially leading as a specialist in the security area on Eastern Europe and Russia. Um, and so that therefore, when Rudy Giuliani started wandering around Ukraine, tic-tac-toeing with a few dodgy characters there, and there were a couple of Trump-appointed ambassadors, I seem to remember, involved too, you became aware of, of what was going on. And I suppose the crunch moment was then when the when the tape emerged of of Donald Trump attempting to pressurise the Ukrainian leader Zelensky into giving him a quid pro quo some dirt on Joe Biden really. Uh, when you heard that, did you know that was going to be the end of your time at the Trump administration?
2: Well, I'd actually, ironically, left the week before, and I and um, actually Ambassador Bolton, my boss, the National Security Adviser, been advising against any kind of phone call. Uh, between um, President Trump and President Zelensky. I have to say that um, Ambassador Bolton all had these things in mind, that he was worried about this. I hadn't got the full picture at that point. I had, like everyone, a big eureka moment (laughs) in the middle of the impeachment trial, as I think was evident to anybody watching it, because I finally put all the pieces together. Because Ambassador Bolton hadn't been quite as forthcoming as he was later in his book, <laughs> and you know, kind of, uh, and in later statements about all of the machinations, he you know had much more insight into them than I did. I knew something was afoot. I knew something was going on, and I was also very worried that this wouldn't be a productive phone call because it was clear that um, President Trump was not particularly interested in um, Ukraine's national security perspective or you know bilateral Ukrainian. US relations he'd been you know expressing resentment that Ukraine was always asking for something and he was quite dismissive of Ukraine I thought this could be disastrous for other kinds of reasons as well but um, absolutely it was clear that uh, a lot of things were going wrong and that there was big problems here and it was probably a good idea for me to be leaving at that point I mean I'd given myself two years as a kind of a a rigid time frame to make sure I did get out of the Trump administration because a lot of people had said to me don't become part of a problem if you can't be part of a solution get out of there and by that period in 2019 it was evident that you know, the bus, as they say, was losing its wheels. The wheels were going off this bus. And, you know, I was going to be a casualty there. But it wasn't just that. I mean, I just kind of also felt that I just was not making any kind of impact um, at that particular point. And it was time to get out there and probably start to, you know, speak out and you know think about things differently. And for me, the big um, issue was the removal of the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Maria Yovanovitch. And, you know, that was so obviously wrong and so obviously motivated by, you know, nefarious activity, that it really got the attention of me and all of my other colleagues. This was in, you know, May, um, April, May of um, 2019. And I'd been planning on leaving around that time. I stayed on until the summer, you know, to help effect the trans- sort of transition. But it was obvious then that um, we were already into the campaign that Trump and others around him were engaged in their own private machinations and that there was... You know something going on here, uh, that was pretty funky, <laughs> and uh, you know we needed to you know call it out and get to the bottom of it. So there was an awful lot of people talking about this. You know we weren't exactly sure what, but that phone call made it crystal clear what, and that Trump was heavily involved. It wasn't just people around Trump, that Trump by this time had thrown his lot in with whatever, you know, in a poke as my granddad would say was being you know tried to was being sold to him by Giuliani and others.
0: Ukraine and Russia are obviously very much in the news at the moment. I mean, who knows by the time this podcast goes out, there may be further news from that part of the world because there's a lot of focus on it right now. What does Vladimir Putin want?
2: Well, he wants lots of things, and I think that's uh, the problem. You know, kind of, he wants lots of things that he isn't going to get. You know, Ukraine back in Russia's orbit, the recognition of Russian dominance of, you know, the old sphere of influence in um, Europe when Europe is essentially carved up, um, you know, with the Soviet Union. It's kind of a, a back to the past, uh, you know, certainly. He wants recognition of Russia as a major player on the international stage as well. And I think, you know, there's a lot of things there, uh, that, you know, suggest that Russia and Putin want to redo over the last 30 years.
0: But they won't get that, will they? That's not, that's that's the not realistic.
2: Yeah, exactly. So that means, you know, kind of a big problem for us, right? He has put out these maximal demands. They're very clear, actually. Ukraine's been held hostage um, as these demands, That's leverage, you know, if we don't do this, we're going to invade Ukraine. They've already invaded it, you know, before, so it seems pretty credible. But we've got no flaw to these demands. We don't know what's going to be minimally acceptable. We're trying to, you know, work it out, but he keeps on going further. You know, we've had all of these negotiations, meetings and talks, and, you know, Putin keeps upping the ante here. Because he wants to have our full, undivided attention on his timeline, and again, that gets back to the point that that's not very feasible either. So we're in, you know, extraordinarily dangerous situation. We're in one of the most confrontational periods that we've been in since the 1980s, since I decided to start learning Russian, you know, back in 1983 of November, where there was a major war scare um, over Euro missiles, you know, and we're kind of back in that same dynamic, and we have got to really figure out how to get out of it right now.
0: Do you think it's in part that, that he sees weakness on the Western side in the United States, among the NATO countries in, in, in Europe generally, and so he's probing? Would that be a, a way of looking Absolutely. at it?
2: Absolutely. I think you're spot on there. And he also, you know, smells weakness, all the things for all the reason we just talked about in the United States, right? Biden looks incredibly weak. Yeah, you know, there's been so much damage wrought by Trump on the US political system and on our relationships with allies. I mean, Biden can't overcome that in a year. I mean, you know, we're still unpacking what happened on January 6th, which was a huge blow to US credibility. Then there's, you know, the precipitous and shambolic withdrawal from Afghanistan. And just to flag then, Trump was always going to do that, by the way. I don't know how it would have turned out, but he was going to withdraw from Afghanistan all the time. Right from the very beginning I got in, he was talking about it. And that wasn't my portfolio, but, you know, it was constant discussion. He, um, you know, in Syria, wanted to pull out of Syria, you know, all of these kinds of things. So, you know, that could have happened on his watch. But you know the basic point is Biden is besieged and beleaguered, and so he looks weak, and it's time for you know Putin to make an action. And as you said, all over Europe, fractions and uh, fissures and. In- the EU, in NATO, Brexit, you know, kind of you name it, there is just so much of an opportunity here to make a move when everybody's sort of fighting with themselves. And, you know, if you're Vladimir Putin, you know, sitting from his vantage point in the Kremlin, it obviously looks like a success. We're all fighting with these ourselves about what to do. You know, Biden makes a bit of a, you know, misstep in things that he says. Everybody's all over him, you know, and Putin's just watching all of this and saying, yep, you guys can't get your act together. I don't think, though, that he just doesn't, quite know what exactly he wants to do next or he's got all kinds of options and he's kind of waiting for events, you know, to see how they play out and that's, you know, really risky because he could miscalculate as well as we could in this environment.
0: Yeah, because he's not, I mean, he's been in power for a very long time, hasn't he? And people can get out of of touch with reality. And I mean, when you you started thinking about being a Russian expert or a Soviet expert, as it was at the time, uh, there were lots of bad things about the Cold War, but there weren't any tank battles in Europe during the Cold War, whereas we could see one in Europe in the next few weeks.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's just these, you know, kind of proxy wars. Um, You know, the conflicts we had during the Cold War tended to be somewhere else, right? I um, mean, as you're in Korea, Vietnam, there was the Cuban missile. Aqu- I mean, the Russians are raising all of these kinds of things. Um, again, you know, there was stuff going on, of course, all over the place. We had a proxy war in Afghanistan, you know, which has kind of, you know, continued, you know, um, into the present day as well um, in different forms, obviously. But, yeah, um, this is uh, pretty sobering. And, you know, we managed to avoid, um, you know, a hot war with and direct war with the Soviets for the entire Cold War. But look, we've already been in a firefight, actually, with the Russians in Syria in 2018. The Russians sent in, you know, these covert forces, the paramilitaries, the Wagner Group, and they shot at, you know, US special forces. And there was a firefight and they took heavy casualties. And we didn't crow about it, but that was pretty scary and wrenching. And it just happened to be that the Russian military wasn't, you know, kept in the loop about this other, you know, subversive attempt there. And, you know, they, you know, didn't really do anything. And, you know, that's why you have rules of engagement and, you to know, kind of you figure out, you know, how you're going to deconflict. And the United States government, the Biden administration has said, look, we're prepared to talk about all kinds of things, including confidence building measures, you know, constraining military exercises. Yes, you know, European security needs to have a rethink, you know, on different fronts because things have changed a lot over the last 30 years. But, you know, we're not going to step back on, you know, some of these principles here. We don't want to just like completely dismantle the entire architecture and start again and you know we're not going to be you know, bargaining away ukraine here and ukraine's independence and sovereignty and, and and russia's managed to make it all about us and say this is all about us and our aggression there wasn't any specific trigger to this particular crisis there were lots of things that Russia's become frustrated about some of them justifiable over you know a 30 year period and a lot of the stuff that they're just making stuff up you know the whole idea of encirclement by nato that's more in their minds Because there's only, you know, Ben Wallace, the British um, defence secretary, just pointed this out, that only 6% of Russian territory are but NATO country. And those are Norway, you know, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland. And then a bit, you know, with the United States, obviously, you know, over in the Aleutians, you know, a bit far off, you know, kind of thing. So, you know, come on, you know, your your biggest borders are with Mongolia, Kazakhstan, and China, you know, but obviously you know, kind of different sets of considerations. And
0: there. China China is weirdly kind of to the side of this particular conflict at the moment, although it's it's very much the it elephant is, it's the in, elephant room, in the room. It is, the elephant in the room for the Russians because, as
2: well, or let's say the dragon at the gate, you know, or something like that, right? Um, we've got a proper metaphor for China. And I mean, the Russians are worried about China. I think a lot of it is posturing about China. And the other thing, you know, that they wor- they're worried about, you know, Chinese um, ambitions over the longer time and that maybe China won't find them as useful as a strategic partner some years hence although maybe Vladimir Putin doesn't have to worry about it but if by 2036 if he's still there he might but they're also worried about that we're all obsessed with China and I think a lot of this has got to do with the fact that um, you know the United States wanted to put Russia in a box tick you know being there dealt with them no thank you so they could focus on China and Russia doesn't want that. Because, you know, as I said, there's a head of steam of grievance that's in frustration that's built up for Putin over 21 years of all the things that he doesn't like. NATO expansion, you know, close relations between former Soviet states and the West and, you know, kind of all the things that he th- wears, he thinks he's been dissed and disregarded. And now he just wants to, you know, make the build you. This is like showdown at the Ukraine corral, you know, high noon, you know, kind of. Putin's stuck on you know his um you know six shooters, and he just wants to have it out now before the Chinese come into the picture again and so you know I really do think that a lot of this timing is you know driven by Russia wanting to make sure that they can get our full attention and get something out before our you know minds move on again and after Geneva in June, which came on the back of that other build up in April, I think they were kind of dissatisfied that they just had another fobbed off set of meetings they've said that. And they actually wanted to force the issue to get something concrete out of this. But that's more than the negotiations. And as you said before, a lot of the demands are impossible. You know, so, you know, they they seem very unhappy with Georgia, the threatening war, war, using the Churchill, you know, idea. And, you know, how do we get them back to saying we're serious? And that then comes back to poor President beleaguered Biden, you know, back at home in the US. If he, you know, looks like he's, moving in the direction of compromise or, you know, opening up some of these issues going to get clobbered, you know, so by, you know, the public opinion at home and members of Congress and all the rest
0: of it. A last question to you, if, if you wouldn't mind, Fiona, there is a there is a thesis in the book, really, based on your own experience and your analysis of the events of the last of the last few decades, which roughly summarised uh, in, in my not so good words is that economic changes and stagnation and deindustrialization and lack of opportunities for large amounts of the population have been a driving force behind the rise of populism and other political difficulties in western countries in in the last few decades and that to address those or in order to address the political problems we have to address those problems of lack of opportunity through investing in education healthcare and other services. I would personally agree with that, but then I look at what has just happened in the United States with um Joe Biden's build back better, which seemed to me to be along similar lines to what you're advocating there. And I wonder is any of that going to really happen?
2: Yeah, I know. I mean I feel the same way. Um when you I have the same question. Uh that's, you know, partisan gridlock, the fighting between the various factions of the Democratic Party, and then, you know, cause the um a complete resistance of the Republican Party to let Biden have a win. You know, you've got that, you know, what I mean, there is a a very black and white uh, political system, or rather blue and red, you know, where um, the country um, uh, seems so completely divided. Uh, I mean, there are an awful lot of people in the middle, you know, like myself, you know, we're not affiliated with a political party and who, you know, kind of would like to see elements of this, you know, bill, maybe not the whole thing, because all kinds of strange things have been factored into it as well, uh, passed. And, you know, when they look at polling, there's an awful lot of these elements that are really popular. People actually want that. But the system gets back to what you said before, it's become so stuck. And the mindsets have become... I um, mean, you know, I've said in some other cities like Mortal Kombat, that old video game, where you've got to actually destroy your opponent and you can't have a win. There's not a win-win. There's just this, you know, um, win-lose, you know, the zero sum, as you know, political scientists say, uh, structure of politics here. So how do you shift that? You know, and I come in the book to what's probably a rather unsatisfying conclusion for myself and for others as well, that, you know, why you actually do need someone to break the gridlock at the top. We might have to start, you know, closer to the bottom in communities and, you know, local governments and, uh, you know, regional aspects, you know, to really kind of change things. Look, smaller countries like Ireland, uh, you know, have a more of a, a chance of turning things around. The United States is big, it's complex, it's got a lot of regional differentiation. But, you know, if you can kind of devolve authority down in the UK, for example, you could get an awful lot more done. The United States has already devolved authority to the federal states. And you know, you could maybe you're gonna to have to have a lot more done on that level. But you've also had the localization of national politics in the US, something that you didn't really have before. We used to say that all politics are local in the US. Well, a lot of politics have become national. And you're seeing the same playing out in the local state house level and even in mayor's offices, the same kind of craziness <laughs> that you're getting on Capitol Hill, you know, especially after January 6. So we're gonna to have to, I think, get a people mobilised. It's one of the things I'm trying to do with the book. And get out there and say, "Look, it's a challenge to all of us. What more can we do to change this? How can we change, uh, change the dynamic? How can we hold our members of Congress accountable? You know, how can we get you know push our mayors and you know governors and other you know local." Um, officials to uh, get change? How can think tanks and philanthropists and um, uh, civil society organisations really get into action here? And, you know, we can see that in many settings that they can, but, you know, do we have the time? And then I have to stop myself from being pessimistic and, you know, try to think in a more optimistic sense and think, well, we just got to, you know, get on with it and, and knuckle down and do it.
0: Fiona Hill's book is called There Is Nothing For You Here. I highly recommend it. Fiona, thanks very much for joining us today.
2: Oh, thanks so much for having me here. It's been a pleasure.
0: And that's it for today. We'll be back in your feed very soon. But do remember you can contact us with your views or your questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, goodbye and thanks for listening.
1: Hold up. What was that?